Sequel Quest, Captain's Log, Episode 50, A Worthy Star Trek Sequel, Potentially. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. Welcome from whatever part of Federation space you may reside to the 50th episode of the Sequel Quest podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been with us for the whole journey, our sincerest thanks. We've covered movies as beloved as Back to the Future and E.T., to cult classics like Short Circuit and The Fifth Element, and even a few infamously bad films like Xanadu and Jupiter Ascending that we thought we could course correct with a sequel. So go back, check out the back catalog, experience the fun of Sequel Quest, because that's really what it's all been about. To celebrate this milestone, we decided to pick a TV and film franchise that is a literal universe of amazing characters and stories. Of course, we're talking about, from the mind of Gene Roddenberry, Star Trek. I am one of your hosts, Captain Adam. And rounding out the crew, we have our chief engineer, Lieutenant Commander Jeremy. Hello. And of course, Ensign Jeff. Ensign, oh, <laughs> not what? What was the chief petty officer? Come on, at least chief, chief petty chief officer. Petty. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into the episode proper, we wanted to tell you about some extra fun ways we're bringing this excitement to you for our fiftieth episode. For example, we have a bonus episode this week discussing Star Trek The Next Generation action figures with a toy collecting enthusiast and also a contest where you can win some vintage Star Trek merchandise. Jeremy, why don't you tell them all about it? We can't just stick our hand in a bucket. We got to be blindfolded. (laughs) Or we can just take off our visor and we'll just actually (laughs) be blind. Wow. You, you feel like I've offended Jordy already? Okay. I don't know. Or or the blind, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> We're going to hire someone who is legally blind. and <laughs> Hey, it's good work if you can find it. <laughs> All right, Jeremy. All right. For this contest, we are going to have three winners for the three prizes. Each winner will get their choice at whatever sticker sets remain. First up, we have an original series sticker set and two Next Generation sticker sets. 
These sticker sets will be chosen on a first winner basis, meaning whoever wins first will get first choice at each of the sticker sets. Now, the hard question is, how do I win these? First, subscribe to Sequel Quest on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Podcast, anywhere that you can find us, and of course, leave a five-star review. Now, take a screenshot of that review once it posts, send it to us by email, sequelquestpod at gmail.com, or on Twitter, at SQPod, along with your name, in order to be entered in the drawing. Now, how will these winners be selected? The winners will be randomly selected by a blindfolded member of the Sequel Quest crew on August 9th, 2017, and will be announced via our social media pages as well as a private message to let you know that you won. The winner will be selected August 9th, so get to it quickly. So yeah, a lot of fun stuff. We're excited to have been doing this 50 times to chat about movies that never existed, but should have in our minds. Some of them, maybe not so much. In fact, last week, if any of you were listening to the Jupiter Ascending episode, I don't know, I made a little bit of a boo-boo. A little? (laughs) (laughs) This is something of a democracy sequel quest and uh, we try to come up with fun episode art you know to promote the concepts that we discuss and for jupiter ascending i came up with one that was kind of a little ugly a little confusing a little (laughs) (laughs) and as i presented it to jeff and jeremy it was instantly vetoed and yet i decided you know i spent much more time on this than i should have for how terrible (laughs) it looked there it is (laughs) i'm gonna use it and i told everybody out there on social media this was not approved by two of the three hosts so anyway my apologies gentlemen and i even i had a parody of the classic star trek intro but i lost out to shatter's penance for my hubris so maybe they'll forgive me by the end of the episode and give me a chance to share it with you we'll have to see about this well but at the same time it's a classic opening and i mean we can parody it all we want but you're never gonna you know top it so if we get the chance to throw out some old school bill shatner i mean come on now so star trek it's kind of strange to choose star trek because there have been so many tv series a plethora of films i'm sure there's many 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 expanded universe books which we won't be taking into consideration here but just the concept of star trek is so vast that it almost feels like what could we possibly bring to the table that's new but we're just that full of ourselves no (laughs) i I think it's more so that we love star trek so much we have such a respect for it wait do we really hold it in that high of reverence or is this just jeff we're gonna put jeff on blast although it sounds like you just put yourself on blast because adam's the one who (laughs) said it so i think Uh, you need to speak your piece first let's hear it jeremy where do you fall in star trek fandom awareness appreciation awareness i've seen episodes throughout my life the original series the next generation and then of late more so the abrams series is probably the most extensive I've actually watched. 
Now, did you have any friends or family that watched it? I remember watching it as a family, but it wasn't anything like religious. We watched it because it was on. And of the options, that was the least offensive, I guess. Well, that certainly <laughs> would be accurate. Yeah. See, now I, I feel like I fall somewhere in the middle here in this discussion because I would say I'm a fairly casual Star Trek fan, yet I love hearing the details of production. I love hearing the stories that maybe I've not heard before, just getting into to the whole fandom element of it, even outside just the stories. The world of Star Trek fascinates me. Yet, my first exposure to Star Trek was just the Next Generation TV series. And I remember, you know, from 1987 through the early 90s, whenever I went over to like a friend's house or a family member's house on a weekend evening, the Next Generation was always on TV. It was like appointment television for everybody I knew. And I was just like, well, I guess I'm getting into Star Trek now. You know, before that, I'd seen parodies on Muppet Babies or commercials for the animated series on Nickelodeon, although I never tuned in to watch it so i mean i knew about kirk and the rest of the original crew but for me it was always about the next generation but i'm not so deep into the lore that it means that much to me but i was very familiar with certain elements i remember armis the oh, living tar pit really you know, tasha yar oh. dying in that episode you know just all, <laughs> all these things but then i became friends with a trekkie slash Trekker, and it kind of opened up my view of what Star Trek could be, and that was Jeff. And so... Jeremy mentioned earlier that he didn't watch the show religiously, but I feel like before you got religion, Star Trek was your religion. So <laughs> talk to us than, a little bit about it. Like, yeah, where did you come into you Star Trek? Think. Why did it mean so much? Well, for one, Adam and I specifically, with our history, which may have been quoted in previous episodes, but when we were in high school and we had pretty much just met... I remember Adam and our friend Justin came over to my house for lunch one day in high school, and I had my Star Trek video game that for some reason we all gathered around and decided to play. And Justin didn't quite understand that there are intergalactic politics going on, so he just decided to fly the ship randomly, and so he flew it like right into the Klingon homeworld. And yeah, so the phrase... <laughs> You invaded Klingon airspace, followed me around for maybe a decade. Nonetheless, so with me, Star Trek was never really that huge to my family. Like, they were very aware of it, and obviously my parents grew up in the 60s with the original series, but they were never big fans or anything. So for me, entering middle school, I started getting really into science. And Adam kind of talked about spiritually, that was back in the era what we call modernism, where the belief was you could either believe in science or you can believe in religion. And that was kind of the prevailing thought. And I was a huge science person. And then all of a sudden the show came along that was feeding into all of the incredible things about science, where it was like we would learn in school about what the sun is made out of. And then we would actually see a Star Trek episode where they're studying the sun. And it's accurate, essentially, what they're doing. Then for me, especially, the characterizations. My favorite show was always Deep Space Nine because I think the characters were so real and so vivid that after seven years, they were real. They felt like people that I knew. And I think that's what a really great TV show does is by the end of that show, you feel like your friends are moving away. But all of those Star Treks did characters so incredibly well. 
Yeah, ultimately, that's what it kind of came down to with Star Trek. There was, you know, space battles, you know, in, in the original series, Kirk would get into fist fights and phasers going off, but that was never the crux of an episode, right? It was all about the conversation. It was about the moral dilemma that they were dealing with and trying to balance. Initially, what's so amazing about Star Trek, when you look at it from, I mean, and you can look at it from a hundred different angles about a hundred different things historically and culturally and everything that makes it so amazing that you look at, they were using flip phones in the 60s and they had video conferencing and everything like all of this stuff that they did in Star Trek, we do today. And I mean, computers, computers in the 60s, they're using computers everywhere. And it's just, it's amazing the way that they did that. And one of the reasons is that they were really focused on accuracy. I mean, they always had technical advisors. They had former NASA scientists that they would consult. As a matter of fact, I mean, the concept of warp drive, the reason they came up with warp drive is because you cannot travel faster than the speed of light, but theoretical scientists have said, theoretically, you could warp the space around you and change the laws of physics. That's the closest thing we can get to. And so that's how they created the warp drive. The second part is that one, Roddenberry always envisioned the future as a peaceful place. He always described the Star Trek Enterprise as the Star Trek Earth. When you look at the original Enterprise crew, you had a Japanese man sitting next to a Russian, and there was a Southern man sitting in the back, and a black woman, and then a Scottish man, and like a boy from I or a guy from Iowa, and an alien. And like they all work together to solve these things. And that's the reason it was a Star Trek and not a Star War. For me, especially today, we live in a Star Wars world. They don't go to the movies to see exploration. No, no, no. We want to see spaceships blowing up other spaceships. We want to see Star Wars. And that's the tough part for me. J.J. Abrams approached those three movies that he made as Star Wars. There's very little science. There's no science in those three movies. There's no science in Star Wars. Star Wars isn't really science fiction. Star Wars is more space fantasy, whereas Star Trek is definitely science fiction. The solution is always science, and the solution is always diplomacy and thinking, not how hard can we punch these people? <laughs> this is my question here. So we're talking about the cultural significance of Star Trek, and then thinking about now, it is an entertainment property. First and foremost, that's what it is. However, it is expanded beyond that. So my question is, in terms of entertainment, you said you really connected with Deep Space Nine, but there also is this whole franchise of films with the original crew, and then we started getting Next Generation films, and then, as you mentioned, the reboot through J.J. Abrams. But talk to me a little bit about the films that you have found the most entertaining. Well, the idea that this is first and foremost entertainment, I would maybe instead say this is first and foremost an art form. Is that for me, and that's always the way that I look at cinema, movies are an art form. And so for well, let, let me say this real quick then about that. Art isn't always static, but in some cases we think of artwork, a painting, all of that. But I went back several years ago, was able to pick up all the original crew motion pictures on VHS at a thrift store. So yeah. I watched, you know, all of the Shatner films and I watched the extended cut of Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. And if you want to talk about artwork, every scene of that, especially the scenes of the enterprise when they're first revealing it, it is so long and drawn out. Well, but it's you got watch the extended music. version. So it's kind of your own fault. <laughs> I mean, if you want to, but now here's the thing. You do have to kind of look at Star Trek films in three chunks. 
you do have the first six, which is the original crew, and then you've got the next four, which is Next Generation, and the first six, you've got the first one, Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is actually Star Trek II, the next TV series. So they weren't able to get it to do a TV show, so instead they compressed the entire season into a movie. And that is why it does feel a little bloated, it does feel like they crammed so much into it, Plus, it's funny how if you watch the Star Trek The Motion Picture, which I always recommend, watch the others first. Then you can go back as like a history lesson. You do start off with an entirely new crew that slowly either gets killed off or bumped off or disappears or whatever to replace them with the original crew. Which is kind of funny because the new show was supposed to be this whole new crew. But the other part is about the motion picture is that realize when that movie came out, Star Trek had not been on TV for a long time. How in the world did anybody know anything about Star Trek? And then all of a sudden, boom, here it is on this big screen. And the budget went through the roof. Klingons actually had ridges in their brows and not just painted faces. And it was notable for that. Yeah, actually, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, the theme of Star Trek, the motion picture is the theme from Next Generation, which I didn't know. It surprised me. Exactly. Because the original theme, which you heard at the opening of the show, is the ha, which I should point out, Star Trek fact, to get extra money, Gene Roddenberry actually wrote words to that song. So there are words that I I don't think anyone ever performed, not like realistically, but that way he got paid not only as the song writer, but also as the lyricist. So Jeremy, had you seen any of those original Star Trek films featuring Shatner and Nimoy? They're not really standing out in my mind that I've watched them. I've probably seen clips or scenes from them, but nothing that stands out that I've watched it fully through. Okay. I was just curious in comparison to the Abrams films where you fell on those, but I guess we'll get to your review soon enough. Yeah. Well, where do you stand, Jeff, on like the Picard movies as well? Gosh, it's the, uh... (laughs) here's the tough thing. I just watched Star Trek Beyond for the first time last night, which by the way, was directed by the Fast and Furious guy? Are you kidding me? I mean, yeah, how? yeah, it was. What? That's a train wreck. And no let. I mean, it was definitely directed by the Fast and Furious guy. Whenever they're <laughs> like, hey, could we add in a scene where I ride a motorcycle through the hills for some reason? Oh, yeah, sure. We can put a motorcycle in there. Yeah, they'll have Are a you dirt kidding bike. Me? A <laughs> dirt bike on a spaceship. Oh. Anyway, here's the problem, though, is that, again, Roddenberry's universe, Roddenberry's dream. This is a peaceful world. This is a peaceful universe that, yes, there's conflict, but we're mature enough to solve our problems without having to punch each other and throw rocks at each other. That doesn't sell tickets. And that's the thing is that when you watch Next Generation, I know Adam mentioned like, oh, there are some space battles. If you watch all seven seasons of Next Generation, I have a feeling there's like four space battles in seven seasons 26 episodes a season there's like literally four space battles (laughs) i mean you look at deep space nine the entire sixth season they went to war and there's still i think only four space battles in the entire seven seasons because that's not the story they're telling the movies especially the later the movies got that didn't work anymore i mean gosh now we're getting too deep here something that's a big key too with understanding star trek is understanding the world that we lived in when Star Trek came out. The world that we lived in in the 60s when that original series came out 
was in the middle of the Cold War. You had the Russians and you had the Americans. They were never actually fought each other, but there was all this maneuvering and they were trying to conquer different things so that they could gain the upper hand. And so in Star Trek, it was the exact same thing. We had the Klingons and we had the Federation and there was maneuvering. They didn't ever fight, but they would ever always like trying to get the upper hand and be the stronger force and blah, blah, blah. Then in Next Generation, the Klingons are now allies, just as the Russians are now the Americans' allies. But the political sequence, like, it's gotten all complex and yada, yada, yada. But that's a really difficult story to tell in a two-hour movie. Right. I feel like each of the original cast films, they did interesting things. Wrath of Khan is essentially a revenge story, right? There's personal stakes there. Khan is angry at Captain Kirk, so he's going to come after him. Just to kind of comment on that, science fiction writers that I've heard from, I mean, not personally, but heard interviewed and stuff like that, Star Trek II is considered one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made, especially from the concept of turning a TV show into a movie because what they did is it's not just a, I mean the revenge story and everything like that. Like that's, that's a big deal. And all the incredible, I think references to Moby Dick and that the fact that uh, Captain Kirk is Khan's Moby Dick. And you know, that's why he keeps quoting Melville and everything like that. But it's not only that, but they took a little remembered TV episode and they went like, what would happen if we went back 20 years later where Kirk doesn't even remember who this guy is, but he has been brooding for 20 years thinking about nothing other than his revenge. Like, that's awesome. For me, Wrath of Khan, I'm on the edge of my seat the entire movie because there's so many dynamics and it's so tense, but there's only one action sequence in the entire movie because they don't need action to tell the story. It's amazingly brilliant for that reason. Then the search for Spock, Leonard Nimoy's directing for the first time. Oh, it's a movie all about me and how I'm coming back. And he just got Klingons in there played by Christopher Lloyd seemingly for no reason. I, yeah. Don't forget John Tesh. <laughs> but then let's do a time travel comedy. The fourth film, The Journey Home, where they're back on Earth and now they're in the the 20th century, which is a very, very fun film. I believe that's like probably the most universally loved of the Star Trek films for non-fans, right? I think you talk to anybody. And then again, the fifth film, God, we're going to search for God and we're going to have Spock's brother in here. And I don't know, that one's a little kind of a mess. And then of course the infamous fan dance from Uhura. You're like, all right, well, okay. Um, the first Star Trek film I actually saw was The Undiscovered Country. I saw that in theaters in 91. It was actually a double feature with Cuffs starring Christian Slater and then I discovered country was after it. Um, <laughs> but I love that story because it was kind of like a murder mystery court drama. The sixth film is a really good outing. I think like you said, Adam, three and four are kind of like, well, now we dug ourselves into a hole. We need to dig ourselves out. We got to find Spock again. We got to get everybody home, blah, 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 blah. But then Star Trek six is what Winter Soldier is to the Marvel movies where it was such a different spin on things. And not only that, but again, remember the idea that, one, Next Generation had already come out, so Klingons are already friends, so we need something to transition between the two. And two, Klingons and the Federation are a metaphor for the Americans and the, 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 the Russians. So how do we tell that story? How do we tell the story with the happy ending of the Russians and Americans holding hands and saying, we can be friends? Just brilliant. Even though George Takei and William Shatner refuse to be on the same set together. That's why they're on different ships. But that's behind the scenes. <laughs>
And then they go back to Jeremy's question about the next generation films. Generations is unfortunate. I just watched that for the first time ever last week. Blending those two worlds actually does not work at all. The Shatner aesthetic is so different from the Patrick Stewart aesthetic that when you try to put them on screen together, it just doesn't work. And it, it because I feel like Next Generation, the chemistry of that crew and the storytelling they did on that show people could get upset if they want it surpasses the original series that was a great setup and those actors are very entertaining but it doesn't come close to the next generation for me it's just kind of a messy film you don't agree if i go that far i mean one it's they're different shows the next generation was an ensemble show whereas the original series was about the big three you weren't supposed to feature uhura because she was a supporting player whereas in Next Generation. One, they got three and a half additional years to tell stories. But two, mm-hmm. yeah, they designed it as an ensemble show, et cetera, et cetera. But the biggest problem was, for me, and again, because I'm such a huge fan of Star Trek VI, Star Trek VI ended, I thought, in such a beautiful way of a send-off. If you've never seen Star Trek VI, like, even just watch the several seconds leading into the closing credits. Because Shatner gives a you know final... Boldly go where no man, where no one, oh, I got chills already, has ever gone before. And then they put all of the signatures of the original cast on the screen and they end with a triumphant theme song. And so it's just like, great, the old cast is done. But then when they wanted to do the next generation, they were afraid that they didn't have what it took to carry the film. They're like, There's, we need more of a transition. But you're mm-hmm. right. I mean, like the biggest problem I had with that movie was Kirk died by falling off a bridge, and then he said, oh my. And that's the final word of one of the greatest (laughs) characters in movie history? Oh my? Get out of here. It was a semi-heroic death, but it was kind of a clumsy heroic death. But then they come back from that. Like you said, they have the apprehension. Can the Next Generation cast really carry it? Well, yeah, and direct it and make a fantastic film First Contact. I just watched that again this week, too. You know, again, it maybe is not the deepest Star Trek type story. You know, the the philosophy is kind of, there is maybe a little bit more action when you got the Borg threatening to assimilate uh, 21st century Earth. Then you get the history of warp travel and all those things. Like, each character got their moment. And I think a lot of it has to do with just the fact that the Borg are pretty much the ultimate villain. Uh, Klingons, I think, are interesting antagonists. Even more interesting as crew members with Worf. But I feel like the Borg are almost feeding again into that fear of communism, just that assimilation. So First Contact's wonderful. But Jeff, where do you follow First Contact? Um, completely disagree. Well, that was maybe a <laughs> little bit harsh. For me, First Contact is kind of like jumping the shark, where the problem is, is that you took a peaceful people and you put them into a movie genre that thrives on violence. The sad slash brilliant thing about the Borg, the Borg were introduced because of waning ratings. So they said, what if we give a character that you can't negotiate with, so you have to fight them? Now, the awesome thing that those writers did in Star Trek is they still found a way to think their way out of that situation. The way they finally defeat the Borg in the famous Best of Both Worlds is they make the most awesome weapon they can, and it does nothing. And it's not until they use their brains and they use their scientific ingenuity that they actually are able to defeat them. Same thing later with Hugh is at one point they get a Borg and they realize that these 
are still sentient individual beings that deserve compassion and everything like that. Then they throw all of that away for first contact. And for me, they tried to do the whole Moby Dick reference again with Picard. This is your white whale. But for me, it was real clunky. And they brought Alfre Woodard for unknown reasons. But it was just like Picard all of a sudden turned into a psychopath. It didn't really make a lot of sense to me. For me, and my wife is the same thing, she's kind of forgotten the entire scenes with the Borg because she loves so much all of the interaction with Jordy and Zephram Cochran as crazy drunk James Cromwell from Babe <laughs> on the planet below. And that's true. Like, I love that part, too. And if that would have been the main storyline and then you do the whole Borg Queen, which Borg Queen <laughs> makes no sense with what the Borg are. That was, we need a villain and let's, let's make a queen. No, they're not ants. Uh, whatever. Yeah. That's what didn't work for me. But just as a film, it is the only one of the next generation cast films that works as a movie that beginning to end, it makes sense. It's enjoyable with the exception of Alfre Woodard, who I think is totally unnecessary to the plot altogether. <laughs> then Insurrection and Nemesis, they're not strong yeah. stories. I think Nemesis gets a bad rap, which by the way, I think that is that his debut, a very young Tom Hardy as the, the bad guy. But the funny thing with Insurrection, Insurrection I think was a response to First Contact because I think they heard people say, this doesn't feel a whole lot like Star Trek. So Insurrection was basically just a two-hour version of an episode where right. they find a problem and they're like, oh, there's these bad guys that are trying to take away everybody's environment. Which, okay, that's not a bad place to start. But yeah, they didn't have enough guts to it and it just wasn't a complex enough storyline. And F. Murray Abraham is wonderful, but he was a little awkward as a bad guy. But yeah, I don't know. I, I like Nemesis. I, I, th I thought it was a step in the right direction, but then that was it. They needed to build off Nemesis, but they didn't have the support to do that. I'm sure as we get into now the Abrams reboot, you've kind of made it already known. Essentially, Abrams was making the Star Wars for the culture that wants a Star yeah. Wars film in a Star Trek universe, right? It's That's still it's yeah. still so baffling to me. Like imagine that you hear the next Spider-Man movie is coming out. And the director goes, well, I've never really liked Spider-Man, so I'm going to make a movie about the Spider-Man I wanted to see. Are you kidding me? There would be riots in the street. That's insane. You would never do that. Same thing with, like, the Han Solo movie. Well, hold on. Isn't that exactly what happened? Because <laughs> now the Ron Howard... Yeah, because Ron <laughs> yeah. Howard is now directing. But did Ron and... Howard ever say that he didn't like Star no, Wars? No, the original director got ousted. Yeah, the pair of directors. The Lego movies. Chris and Lord, I think. Oh, right. It drove me crazy, too. I heard Zoe Zaldana interviewed, and she said, like, they said, did you ever watch Star Trek as a kid? And she's like, no, I was too young, which I was just like, too young? How old were you in the 90s? Are you, like, seven years old? I mean, Star Trek Enterprise ended in 2005. I, I don't know what she's been doing with her life. But that's always been my perspective, Adam, is that the new Star Trek movies are Star Trek movies for people who didn't like Star Trek. Beyond the lens flares, I know you know J.J. Abrams loves his lens flares. Uh, I challenge anyone to Google Star Trek lens flares, and it's, <laughs> it's fascinating how many lens flares he uses. And if you don't know what a lens flare is, you will, trust me. I mean, even like when I just watched Beyond last night, the whole thing was we're trying to get this super weapon that is an ancient weapon that we don't know where it came from, but it kills people instantly. Like, what? No, that's not science. That's magic uh, and not only that but also again if the solution is i can build a bigger gun to blow you up 
that's not Roddenberry, you know? That's Lucas, I guess. Okay, so essentially J.J. Abrams was captained to do the Star Trek because they didn't have the rights to Star Wars yet. Oh, really? And it's essentially when this movie, the Star Trek movie, was the one that got him The Force Awakens. You're welcome. Because they're both owned by Disney. Star Trek is owned by Disney? No, they're owned by Paramount. They're, they're always owned by Paramount. Yeah, but it's essentially Disney that's running Paramount. So they really? got some sort of partnership or something? Yeah, it's, it's a partnership. But, but they're, they're more or less the shadow government behind Paramount at this point. <laughs> it's funny because... Back with Lost, like, I was a big Lost fan. And so, I, you know, coming in, I'm like, hey, J.J. Abrams. Like, he's pretty legit. But the more and more I watch J.J. Abrams, I don't think the man is very creative. Is creative at all. I don't think he can create anything new. I think he only can repeat things that he's already seen. So that's why The Force Awakens yeah. is just a new hope. And that's why Star Trek, like, he's just recycling the same storylines. I mean... He did an embarrassing job in Into Darkness of repeating Wrath of Khan. I mean, the, you took a brilliant movie and you turned it into a bunch of mess. Here's what I'll say, Jeff, in defense of J.J. Abrams, because I agree. I don't think he comes up necessarily with original concepts. But what his strength is, is the relationships and adding the character elements to his movies where you just love the characters that he is playing around with. But so do to you, me, though? Like that, did you love those characters in Star Trek? I did in the first one. I really, really enjoyed that first one quite a bit. I don't, I but did they not all hated really care. Each other. They had the conflict, yes, but even just the struggle that they were having to be in, on the same bridge together to me was very endearing, especially because you understood each of their points of view. And then by the end, they had realized each other's strengths and all those things, which I think was great for me. Again, not as the ultimate Star Trek fan. I did not connect with the original series version of these characters, although I did think some of the films were fine. But I do enjoy what they're doing now and reintroducing them. Now, I don't think that continued with the other two films. Some about that origin and the banding together was great. But do I want to see them for all time now as the Star Trek crew? I don't know yet. Maybe a fourth film if they ever get Chris to Pine, it. Maybe man. what we pitched tonight. What but, is it about um... Chris Pine? Why? Why? What? Has he brainwashed us all? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, so but that, here's I mean, one, that's here's one question on a whole separate yeah. note. I mean, like, if we can get into continuity and stuff like that, which is another tough part. Continuity is a huge part of Star Trek. They have armies of people that work on their continuity, and they have done for all of their content all of their movies and TV shows, they've done a phenomenal job of keeping continuity and, you know, the whole retcon going back and like, well, we meant to say this. No, they're awesome at that. And J.J. Abrams couldn't give a darn about continuity. There's no sense. I mean, forget about continuity from these movies to the others. Even inside the movies themselves, I'm still baffled about how the most emotionally unstable person on that entire ship is Spock. What? <laughs> the logical one is the one that can't control himself oh ridiculous let's jump to the pitches here jeremy do you have one i uh, i've got something tell us about it all right well uh, i was wanting to do something to make this current timeline the kelvin timeline or whatever you want to call it a fish out of water story and i came across first contact and so I was like, well, could I adapt that to the Kelvin storyline? The going back in time to the first 
time that they actually made a warp drive here on Earth. That'd be good. But I think what it would cause is uh, as they're out on their latest five-year voyage or whatever they're doing after Beyond, they come upon an anomaly, kind of black hole-ish, but it would be a temporal aberration, pretty much allow them to go back in time. And going through that, they would fall back into, I think it was 2063 is the time. And at that point, their arrival through the time portal in some techno babble would call the attention of the Klingons and bring them towards Earth for the first contact. Leave the Borg out. We can go into them later on bring the Klingons in as their first invasion or attempted invasion of Earth. And it is through this interaction here on Earth that we meet some of the next generation crew and we can integrate some of them and kind of turn over some of our own crew and evolve. But how do they meet the next generation crew? Well, let's just say those characters exist in this timeline. And now, it, from this point, you're saying it allows them to be introduced. Yes. In this altered timeline, due to the Kelvin interaction, maybe we can bring on a Geordi-type character. And that way you've got another tech genius. They get their own Worf-type character from the invasion from somebody that they capture. There you go. And convert him over to the Federation. That was it well, was kind of the point. idea I was playing with. A uh, little fish out of water, they got to go back in time and live things without all their techno gadgets and just at the I guess boom of warp travel on Earth. Okay, well actually I I'm, I'm going to go then cuz my film sounds like it would be the sequel to your film. Nice. <laughs> We're building our own trilogy here. <laughs> exactly. Because mine, too, is set in this Kelvin universe, the Abrams verse, however you want to refer to it. Because I just said to myself, okay, we, we've gotten three of those films. What can we do to bring it back around? Or what can we do to take the next generation continuity and Abramify it? You know, let's just let's just make it terrible and make Jeff, you know, throw up in his chair. And so this is through the lens of JJ Abrams style Star Trek films. This is my film called Star Trek Resistance. After a decade in the captain's chair, Kirk is beginning to wonder if he's willing to sacrifice the possibility of having a family in order to make Starfleet a career. And after requesting a vacation at Starfleet headquarters in San Francisco, Kirk exits the building and finds his car being stolen as sabotaged by the Beastie Boys blares from the window. Kirk gives chase on a flying motorcycle and catches the thieves, kind of mirroring his own opening origin story of the first film, who turn out to be a runaway teenage couple named Billy and Deanna. Now, as he sees this kid, he sees the rebelliousness, kind of sees his own self, his younger self, in the eyes of this kid. So through a Starfleet ordinance allowing displaced youth to be placed in the care of an officer for two weeks, Kirk is able to place Billy and Deanna under the watch of his crew by falsely claiming their parents are trapped on Rigel 4 due to an atmospheric disturbance. The rest of the crew are against having children on board, especially Spock, who finds the decision illogical and distracting, especially when Deanna uses her latent telepathic abilities to reveal negative thoughts he's having about Uhura, complicating their relationship once again. 
Now, Kirk's attempts to be a mentor fail in many ways throughout the film, as he tries to teach Billy life lessons he never got to learn from his own father, so he's kind of a hypocrite, he's just not following through. So, Kirk gets some advice from Sulu, who we found out is a father in Star Trek Beyond, to be less of a professor and more of a guide through responsibilities that he can give to Billy that will allow him to have a chance to grow as a person. Now, Deanna reveals herself to be an engineering prodigy, which she fixes a malfunctioning transporter, and the girl is put under Scotty to keep her occupied. Now, despite her somewhat abrasive attitude, she and Scotty hit it off, trading witty banter, which then makes Keenzer, Scotty's little alien assistant, jealous. While praising her engineering skill and helping Scotty perfect a device that can only open and close wormholes for a brief period of time, Scotty eventually helps Deanna to mellow out, convincing her to use her telepathic ability to help people rather than embarrass them. While en route to a mission designed to win the favor of a Ferengi ambassador to improve the trade of dilithium crystals, Billy finally reveals that he and Deanna are on the run from his mother, Betty Riker, a scientist who became obsessed with creating a perfectly adaptable life form after the death of her husband. Attempting to prevent the loss of her son as well, Dr. Riker had begun illegal experimentation on young members of many races, trying to combine their evolutionary traits to create the perfect being. Disgusted by her goal and having fallen in love with a Betazoid test subject named Deanna, Billy ran as far away from his mother as possible. Now, Dr. Riker hires a bounty hunter named Grob to retrieve her son, but his body is severely damaged in an accident while attacking the Enterprise crew to retrieve the teens. Grob's body is returned to the doctor by a cybernetic drone, and the nearly dead bounty hunter is outfitted with cybernetics to replace his damaged limbs, which also gives her mental control of his body. Meanwhile, Billy and Deanna are chastised by the Enterprise crew after they accidentally jettison the ship's supply of dilithium crystals during a wild makeout session on the cargo deck. Feeling betrayed by the frustration of the adults they had just begun to think of as family, the kids seal an escape pod, returning to Ferengar to hide. Kirk, Bones, and Scotty form an away team to retrieve the children, but find them being pursued by the newly enhanced Grob, who, due to a glitch in his speech circuitry, now only says, We are Borg. The trio is outmaneuvered by the Borg, who succeeds in kidnapping the children and returning them to Dr. Riker's lab. The final confrontation finds Dr. Riker protecting Billy against the Enterprise crew by sending her newly created squad of Borg to attack. The Borg were created from her test subjects, to whom she has grafted not only cybernetic enhancements that put her in control of the collective, but the perfected genetic code which makes them adaptable to any attack. Kirk and his team are unable to overcome the Borg alone, and prevent Dr. Riker from subjecting Billy to the Borg conversion process, which she believes is the only way to save him from certain death, someday. The crew manage to get the upper hand when Deanna steals the control headset from Dr. Riker, who is stunned when the young telepath passes Billy's true feelings about his mother directly into her mind. The crew are ready to take the kids to safety and turn Dr. Riker over to Starfleet when the Mad Doctor reveals that she's created an army of drones that have ready to assimilate all life forms. The heroes try to stop her, but it's clear that Dr. Riker has grafted the adaptability gene to herself as well, as she declares resistance is futile. The drones are activated, immediately assimilating a few red shirts. Kirk determines that the only way to prevent this plague from spreading is to send the entire lab to an unpopulated corner of the universe through the wormhole device created by Scotty and Deanna. 
the device is activated, and the Borg are banished. Back on the Enterprise, Deanna helps Uhura and Spock reconcile by revealing the secret lovey-dovey feelings they've never shared with each other. Scotty offers her a position as an engineering ensign on the ship, but Deanna decides that she might do more good as a counselor and submits her application to Starfleet Academy. Meanwhile, Billy also decides to enroll in Starfleet Academy to become a captain like Kirk, who, while flattered, recommends that Billy plan on serving as first officer to an up-and-coming captain oh, named Picard boo. in a few years by before taking the helm as credits roll. <laughs> How terrible could it be? That bad. So, although I bet you JJ is just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Let me and then take a bounty hunter? Ooh. Yeah, this one probably has the most likelihood of, of being made. So That's what I felt. I said, hey, maybe I'll get credit one of these days. Yeah. I would like to point out, though, just for continuity, because that's my thing, you're about 200 years off, is because Next know. Generation takes place about 200 years after the original series. Because in, in that scenario, it sounds like they'd be about 30 years apart. But, yeah, uh, and I, I'm very plus, aware of that, but I just Deanna's thought Abrams alien. would throw that out. He's like, people want the Borg. People want Next Generation. How are they, we going to do it? Yeah. And, and again, and especially if you don't care about continuity, not you, I mean, you too, but, you know, like, like <laughs> Mr. Abrams, then whatever, dude, let's just check up a Captain Archer from Enterprise, whatever, who cares? <laughs> All right, Jeff, give us the purest okay. view of where Star Trek should go. Well, I don't know about that. because now, And to be honest, this is the tough thing that I was wrestling with. I don't spend nearly as much time as you do, Adam. I kind of wish I, w- I do sometimes, but great Star Trek had great writing and great dialogue. And I don't have that talent. Like, I can write, you know, the next Fast and the Furious movie by just, you know, <laughs> and then a car drives in a circle and everyone goes, wee, all right, billion dollars, please. But that's not Star Trek. So my best stab was I need to undo what Abrams has done. So that's the problem. That's the first issue. I'd love if I could do a one-off like Marvel tried to do. Wait, what was Marvel's so, one-off? What are you talking about? Well, like about? they're one-off and trying to justify the Mandarin where they're like, oh, no, he's a, he's a, he's a gang the leader. The one-shot. The one-shot. The one-shot. Whatever you want. Oh, okay. So you couldn't just do like, we're just going to do like a, you know, a direct to DVD or like online sort of a, this is why we're back to, no, that's not Star Trek. So the first one would be alternate universe, much like the famous mirror, mirror where Spock grew a goatee. There's an alternate dimension where in that universe, the Federation lost the Romulan war. So in this universe, you know, Nero destroyed Vulcan. So that's what makes this an alternate universe. So it would be about someone from the Abrams universe, transporter accident, something like that ends up in the real universe. And my ideal would be that they don't fit in because all they know is violence. And they just keep thinking like, no, we got to fight people. And they're like, no, no, we don't. And then that would be, but that's a little too heavy handed. So maybe that wouldn't work. So my other one, which would be a little more Star Trekky, but it didn't work so well on Enterprise is it would start with the new crew and they're flying around past that magical nebula and they see a planet like all of a sudden just disappear. So they're trying to study it and figure something out. And then they notice other things like something that dramatic happening. And what they figure out is that somebody actually picked up on Nero's technology and they think what he was doing was a pretty good idea. So they're doing the same thing. They're traveling into the past to change things to affect the future. So that leads to obviously a big issue because civilization as we know it and all civilizations are being threatened. 
So it ends up actually bonding the universe together that everybody has to get together to decide like this is too much power for anyone to have. So they all get together and they form what they call the temporal accords. And the temporal accords are basically saying, none of us will use this. This is too much power. This is too dangerous. All major civilizations are getting together to agree on these accords that we will not do this. And to make sure that this happens, they create this team of temporal, I don't know, policemen or whatever. Time um, cop? That, that it's their job to police the time stream and to make sure that people aren't changing history and doing all that sort of stuff like that which again that's part of the plot line of the tv show enterprise is that they have the temporal accords but this is a whole different universe so anyway temporal accords are going on we would then have this one captain well respected in the time cops by the name of roe and captain roe decides that everything would be so much easier if somebody would have actually gone back and stopped nero in the first place even though that would be disrupting the timeline and it breaks the rules that the temporal accords set and stuff like that so she breaks the rules though and goes back and you know fights nero ends up defeating him arresting him or whatever travels back to her time and sees that you know everything has changed and uh again that feels like that might have to be an entire movie all into itself but the second part of that that i would want to tell the story of is more the new world that Captain Rowe is coming into. And that one, finding out that her race, she was a Bajoran, her race are kind of considered the dregs of the galaxy. They were kind of refugees as their planet was conquered. And so they've just kind of wandered looking for other homes. And everywhere they go, they're kind of met with, oh, you're just a drain on our society. We don't want you here. And that's one of the struggles that she's struggling with. But then the second thing in this new future, the Klingon Empire has a new chancellor that has risen in place of Gowron. Uh, well, Martok has passed it on. And he is kind of bringing back the old Klingon for the Klingons. And like, we need to be the strong and we need to be feared in the universe. And we need to be this superpower like we used to be. And that's really gaining a lot of traction where a lot of people are really supporting this new chancellor. But it's really creating a lot of antagonism, especially with the Federation, which they're not part of, but they're friends with. And that whole conflict is really coming along. At the same time on Earth, the Terra Prime movement has risen back up again about people saying Earth needs to be number one in the Federation and humans should come before all of these others. And kind of thrown in the midst of all of this, Roe is kind of observing all of this. So the long extended story would be Ambassador Worf, who is still the ambassador to the Klingon Empire, wants to build this bridge. Like he sees where the Empire is going and he's like, well, no, like I've got all these ties to the Federation and, you know, we, we can't throw that away and peace is the, you know, the solution and stuff like that goes out and seeks retired Admiral Picard and Admiral Picard would then point him to, for some reason, I don't, I hadn't quite figured out. He would have to point them back to the Bajorans being the key, something about Bajor and the Bajorans and these refugees, something about them is the secret to not some magical secret to, you know, universal peace, but this idea that something about them and their strength of character or something, that's what's going to kind of bring everybody together. And so then that would bring Roe into seeking not only what this is, but how we can actually get this to do what it's supposed to do. And the nice part is, too, is that now that you've tied all of these parts in, is that you can start to introduce, or maybe at this point I would think they'd be more cameos, because this seems like it's mostly Roe, 
and then Worf's movie or movies. But then you go back to the Bajorans and you can run into Kira. You can see Captain Sisko if he comes back from his mystical journey, et cetera, et cetera. You can reintroduce all of these characters as cameos as well, ultimately resulting in Worf would have to challenge the Chancellor for leadership of the Klingon Empire. And so then Worf ends up becoming the Chancellor of the Klingon Empire, and this time decides, no, this is my destiny. I'm going to you know, lead us to a new era of cooperation and peace. All right, so we could get Patrick Stewart and Michael Dorn back into this universe. I yes, think we have what to. You're saying. Not as regular characters, because I think the secret is, and, this, and maybe that's what they're trying to do with Star Trek Discovery. Discovery. If you think about it, we fell in love with these characters in their shows, and then they made a movie. So to make a movie while introducing characters, that's kind of backwards for Star Trek. First, you got to fall in love with the characters, and then you're going to actually care what they're going through. So to kind of bridge that gap where we can do cameos, we've got kind of lesser-known characters. Worf's not a lesser-known character, but he just seems to be everywhere. I mean, he was in Deep Space Nine. He was in Next Generation. He had the cameo in Star Trek VI. Like, he's just everywhere. So you throw Worf in anywhere. Roe is kind of like a minor character, so you can kind of use them and cameos to maybe start introducing new characters and start an entirely new... Okay, but I think we have to throw out the Time Cops pitch because that is a film. <laughs> Jean-Claude Van Damme is not making a cameo in that pitch. Name time Cops? I was using that as... <laughs> it's, but it's the same premise. That's what I'm no, saying. And you no, said... it's not. <laughs> no, because Time Cops, uh. didn't he go back to try and like solve crimes? He wasn't trying to protect time. Well, they were supposed to stop criminals who were yeah, making use of time travel for criminal oh, purposes. Yeah. yeah. Well, which of these pitches will get our vote? Jeff, since you were last, which one has your vote? As far as which one I would most like to see, because I feel like, Adam, yours is the closest to an Abrams, that's what he would do. And I don't like what he would do. So I just can't find myself voting for yours. I'd have to vote for Jeremy's just because of that reason, if nothing else. So I could be okay with some of that. Let's go back to first contact and kind of reestablish those sort of things. Because again, I did love that storyline of Zephram Cochran and all that sort of stuff like that. You, you bring James Cromwell back, dude. I'm on board. All right, Adam, where do you stand? As much as I think it would be interesting, again, to try to take the Abrams verse in a direction that makes sense and maybe you could make it something of interest, like you said, find a reason to introduce the next generation crew uh, into the franchise eventually, like I was trying to do. I feel like at this point, you know, we got three of them, didn't quite hit by the end of it. I feel like Jeff's pitch for let's get it back. Let's give us a chance to bring in many different actors that were beloved and that we've seen in other movies and other series and work them into this new old universe that's being brought back together. So I, I would have to vote for Jeff to give us now a new crew to get behind. Well, my vote would also be for Jeff. As much as I'd like to see your pitch, Adam, because yours fell in line with my own, uh, we probably need to go a new direction with this and kind of escort out our current Abrams continuity and bring in a new one that can be fresh that isn't so Star Warsy and more Star Trek. Because that's the tough part. Do we live in a movie world where Star Trek still makes money? Will people still go to see a Star Trek movie? If Wrath of Khan came out today where it's a sci-fi space movie with only one action sequence and mind you, the action sequence is the Enterprise getting its butt kicked. 
There's not a fight. It's just a butt kicking. There's no back and forth. Does that still sell? This is a film that maybe we get five years from now, because I have to believe there's going to be a backlash soon to huh. these world-ending disaster films, even in the superhero genre, where you know you have these galactic threats to the universe and timelines and continuity. I feel like people are going to want to get back to maybe a more personal and more straightforward actual science fiction concept. People are going to want to come back to that eventually. So maybe, you know, we, we keep it in development for a few years and see how Discovery does. And then we launch this because it looks like, yeah, they're just basically saying, well, here's this new crew. They are in a Star Trek type universe and it's, you know, a streaming service. So you're going to get uh, a little bit of nudity, a little bit of language. It's going to be a little <laughs> bit harder edged. And I was like, is that even Star Trek? I'm unsure. Oh. Yeah. But with your pitch, I guess the one question that I have then is so well, which one if you were saying no, no to the temporal accord. So we're talking about the other one in like an alternate universe. Well, I guess what I was saying is if there was maybe a different way to explain it, I guess is almost how I was feeling. Like, is there a way that someone could just go back, like you said, maybe more of an accident, maybe rather than intentionally, and then the new timeline that's been created. Now, like you said, they're trying to find their place in it because it just felt like the other stuff was so muddy at the beginning. Like there was just so much with the temporal accords and they got to figure this out. Da, 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 da. What if somebody just was a Starfleet officer and ends up in this situation you keep it very simple it's like now they are in this alternate timeline and yeah. now what do they do now that they're there with the right. knowledge they have from their own timeline how do they now apply things and fix things in this timeline? Well, kinda, I just kind of like you said adam and it's interesting if you watch and i know adam you've watched some of the documentaries on especially next generation and what they kind of went through is that roddenberry's writing style for the original series it was always story first character second and you will get to know the characters through the story and then Next Generation started that same way, but then somewhere in the second and third season, they switched and they made it character first, story second. So they were always character driven stories. And that's like, I know for, for you and pretty much for me, that's what really worked was that connection to the character. So I wonder mm -hmm. if whoever this character, like the character that does this, it's about them, it's their experience and it's a character story about their growing, changing, learning, whatever. Well, I will say that seems to be what Discovery is about, though. It's the story of a first officer who's a human raised as a Vulcan and all this kind of stuff. So I almost thought, like, if you just tied it to the Kelvin event, you know, so what Nero was doing at, at that timeline, maybe there were two timelines that spawned off of that, and you just make it that simple. It's like there was this other captain that was coming in to help the kelvin and then all of a sudden blah you know like they got launched across as in there were two ships when kirk's dad died uh, yeah so so basically there was another ship that got there late and maybe some like temporal rift that came after the red matter did its effect they just had a side effect of shooting this other ship into another timeline that's closer although and that, that's the tough part is the quick easy fix that's a star wars style where it's just <laughs> kind of like oh there's another ship sure we didn't see it uh, how did we miss it this whole time but uh, well man, maybe know. it's maybe it's a situation where in this timeline the prime directive is different maybe in this timeline starfleet's whole purpose 
is to interfere and kind well, of inflict their the other, philosophy. Right. Yeah. The other one that you can do is, again, the mirror, mirror thing. Where, like, in Mirror Mirror, there was a transporter accident, and then all of a sudden, whoop, I'm in an alternate dimension, or an alternate universe. But Mirror Mirror without the evil versions of characters you know. Unless, I mean, if you want to be really, you know, cynical, you could say, no, 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 no. we are the evil versions. Like, the ones that came over (laughs) from the Abrams first, they're the ultraviolet, like, blow them up evil versions. Now, that's, again, a little heavy-handed for me, but we could go a completely different direction, and it could be that Spock, although, I don't know, because of Spock's limitations, he's not designed to be a solo character. Because, I mean, even Zachary Kinto's, like, horribly bipolar whatever he's doing, he's not relatable enough. He's not supposed to be. He's Spock. So it's tough to make if you make Spock your main person. Well, what about this? What if Uhura is the one that goes through? And what if the alternate Uhura dies, but that Uhura was a captain of a starship? And so that when she goes over, like they assume she is that captain and then she's thrust into that timeline. And I know it's almost totally taking apart your pitch. No, no, it's it's fine. Because again, it's that whole alternate thing. I really struggle because again, I think it's very clear that Zoe Zaldana has no idea who Uhura is. And so that's what's always so difficult for me. But that's you can redefine it now. That's what I'm saying. You can't, though. I mean, this is like a historic figure. I mean, again, Martin Luther King walked up to Nichelle Nichols and said, do you have any idea how important this character you're playing is? Like, this is a historic character. So Well, but I almost feel like, you know, we've had the milestones in Captains, right? We had the young, strapping, Anglo Captain. We had the elderly, but wise, adventurous Captain with Picard. Got Cisco, you know, then Janeway. So you're breaking the barriers there. Then Jonathan Archer. (laughs) He had a dog. But but here's what I realized when I say that. I'm like, okay, well, yeah. So then we're having a strong black female Captain. But again, we're dancing around what they're already doing with Discovery. So maybe we just need to take a step back and let discovery run its course and we'll find well, out what the heck are we are been doing here jump? for 45 minutes we got to tell discovery uh, what they should be doing because i mean cbs is the people that said this star trek thing will never fly we're going to cancel it and these are the guys that we're entrusting star trek to uh, i don't know plus they fired their showrunner like three times so i don't have total faith that they know what they're doing what it could be is that the overall whoever the person is and whatever the specific adventure is there's a transporter accident and they end up in the mirror mirror universe which they've actually gone back to several times or like you said it's just a wackadoo prime directive whatever you want but then at the end of the movie the dorothy going home moment is that instead of going back to the abrams universe they go to the original prime universe that's where they end up and so we do end up getting back home at the very, very end. Do you really want to bring back that status quo? The ultimate thing that bothered me so much about J.J. Abrams' premise is the idea that everything for 50 years that we've come to love about Star Trek, all of the characters, all of the adventures, all of that, what he did is he said, all of that's gone now. Forget all of that. None of it ever happened. What? That makes no sense. What the heck have I been enjoying for 50 years? Well, Jeff, you brought up Captain Archer. Why not make it a quantum leap scenario or or sliders? (laughs) And they just jump to alternate mirror, mirror universes throughout all the films. Come on. You never know what you're going to get next. And that'll be the draw. It's not anything you've seen before. You know, one could be an alternate next generation universe. One could be an alternate Voyager universe. And they somehow make that interesting and worth watching. Even more so, if you want to go full Abrams, 
I could see Abrams getting behind this alternate universe thing. I mean, it wouldn't be Star Trek connected at all. They just jump into a universe where, <laughs> you know, yeah. everybody has three heads. He jumps into a universe where there's monsters that he has to fight. As long as he jumps home, or like home home, our home, the real home at the end, that's all I really care about. He can screw up everything else in the meantime. So there it is. Quantum Leap Star Trek. We got it. <laughs> and we talked about this. You started off the show by saying, Adam, haven't we done everything under the sun? But you look at all of the different episodes and all the different creative, inventive things that Star Trek did. I mean, like when I saw Inception, I was kind of like, yeah, I mean, Star Trek totally did this like 10 years ago, guys. When I saw <laughs> The Matrix same thing i'm like dude wesley crusher so solved this back in season four and keanu reeves can't figure it out now get out of here there's so much content that even if you just want to recycle it or use like the same kind of inspiration and go off the rails we could do an entire adventure on the hollow suite endless possibilities my friends Wow, we had a lot to talk about with Star Trek, but there's still more to be had. Find the bonus episode with Darren from StarWarsJunk.net talking next generation action figures. Leave a review, get yourself entered in the contest, win yourself some Star Trek merchandise, something just to put up on the shelf. So here's the real question, though, guys. Have I done a good enough job? Can I give you my intro outro? Uh, I guess. Let the people decide. <laughs> well, I guess you'd have to do it anyway so they could hear it and then they can decide. <laughs> we'll retroactively delete it if they vote against exactly. it. Exactly. Continuity! Right. Cue the music. Podcasts. The audio frontier. These are the ramblings of the Sequel Quest crew. Its seemingly endless mission to create sequels, prequels, and reboots to movies we want more of. To boldly imagine what no Hollywood studio has imagined. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting SequelQuestPod.com, following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching Sequel Quest, or sending an email to SequelQuestPod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. 